The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. How many people are here for their first Buddhist studies class? So a few of you, welcome. Really nice to have you here. So I think way back, 1998 or 99, this program began, and it's now a six-year curriculum, but it, you don't need to think of it as having a beginning or ending because all of these teachings, these maps coming out of early Buddhism, they're really useful to keep revisiting. I find it useful to keep revisiting them. And uh, yeah, and so you may be starting now, but you may not be able to do all the classes. You know, there's usually four per year. But it's totally okay to come in, do the ones you can do. But we do ask that if you sign up for a Buddhist studies program, that you make a commitment to being here on Monday night. Some people um, hear it through the live stream that Scott Jensen has been organizing for our wider community that can't get themselves to the center. But that doesn't mean you can't have a business trip or have to do something with your kids on a Monday night. It's just that when you can come, you do come if you sign up for the class. And the idea is, is, you know, especially now that we've become a pretty big group, used to be a much smaller gathering, but we don't want people to feel that anonymous. Like we actually benefit from each other's commitment and devotion to the practice. And so it really helps that we have this sense of obligation. Oh, yeah, I'm for these eight weeks, if I can come on Monday night or if I can listen to the talk, because we do record it besides the live stream, then I'm going to do that. I'm going to do some study. Hopefully most of you got the email that I sent out this afternoon with some of the initial articles that you can study. If you didn't get the email... That might mean you didn't register. So there's uh, Dave and I put out a slip of paper on the table in the lobby. Just put your email, print neatly, put your email if you didn't get the email this afternoon or if you didn't, you've never registered in the last few years for a Buddhist studies uh, class because we, that email list, you know, it has most of you. But the new folks, or if you change your email address, then we need to get your email so you get those. And there will be readings, there will be other Dharma talks you can listen to. You might find your own really great Dharma resource on impermanence, especially those coming from early Buddhism, and especially those coming from a more diverse range of Dharma voices. Um, I would be very happy to get those, and then I'll get them in with the other resources that we have so that, yeah, we have, we can just sort of find our way how we supplement the talks here on Monday nights and the conversations you have here on Monday nights with other Dharma voices, some of our senior teachers and others in our wider early Buddhism insight meditation community. And, you know, I'm sure you get this. This is just the beginning, right? We want, we want to aspire to a lifelong interest in Anicca or any of these topics that we pick up over the years of the Buddhist studies classes. It's, we're just sort of opening a door, keeping a curiosity alive. And they're all, you know, these maps that come out of early Buddhism, they're just conceptual frames, conceptual teachings, stories, you could even say, that if they're used correctly, bring the heart, encourage the heart to open, to see, to connect with the moment just as it is. Otherwise, it's just a lot of talking about what we think is the way that it is. And this you know, is a shadow not just in Buddhism, but probably in any spiritual tradition where we, because it's so much easier to think about practice and to think 
about the way things are, as opposed to, to use the sensitivity of our heart and mind, and we've got this experience right here, that we have our own immediate, beautiful laboratory of our life, right? And the truth of the way it is, it's right here. So remember that all these teachings, because they can seem in moments at least complicated, and it's really people are encouraged to put a lot of what you're hearing or reading on a shelf. It may be useful information later, may not be useful right now, that's totally okay. It might be that there's just one or two little gems that you just help you wherever you are in your practice, and you run with them as long as they're supporting, informing, clarifying your own direct experience, great. And don't worry about the rest of the stuff. So there is a prerequisite to take the class. If you're unfamiliar, you can check the website or just come talk to me afterward. Um, we're pretty loose, but we don't. We really want people to have a commitment to practice. This sort of coming together of study and formal practice and the introduction of information, like really connecting with the early Buddhist teachings. This person and the reverberations of this person we refer to as the Buddha, which is just a title for somebody who's awake, right? That's what Buddha, Bodhi, that's what that word means. So we're connecting with a particular lineage. doesn't mean the other lineages aren't good, but, you know, every system has its system. And when you really invest in one system, then it's a lot easier when you do investigate or open to other systems, other lineages, to use those instructions of pointing out or poetic expressions to illuminate your main system, your main sort of map or ma group of maps that you're using. So Common Ground is an insight meditation center, a Vipassana meditation center, which means you know, that we really like or find valuable this, this stream that we refer to as Theravada or early Buddhism. Theravada means the teachings of the elders. Maybe that's enough nuts and bolts. Any questions about the nuts and bolts? Yeah, Haya? Yeah, so there's an optional set at 7 o'clock, and then the bell rings at 7.25. And so if you get here for the 7 o'clock sit or even a few minutes after, please come in, join us. If you get here 7 minutes after 7 or 10 minutes after 7, then you can have a conversation in the community room or meditate outside or just sit in the lobby or sit downstairs and meditate. But don't come into the meditation hall after 7.05 just so that the people who get here early can have a quiet time for their sit. Good, so I'll start sharing a little bit, introducing this topic. Some of you have been through this class. I think it was last taught in 2013. So this may be the third time now we've had a, Kam Gran has had a course on impermanence. And it's one of the central teachings in Buddhism. But remember, the Buddha was really a pragmatic person. So he's not like really wanting us to like get on board with some philosophical or metaphysical belief or conviction that everything changes. Right? And a lot of us are probably there already anyway, because intellectually it makes a lot of sense that everything changes. You know, and we could and people do, you know, build a religion around an institution around that belief. But the Buddha was really pragmatic. So what he's I think what he's saying is if you take up, and this isn't the only thing, there are many different themes, and some themes will stand out for some of you and other themes for others, right? So, but it's even if impermanence isn't your theme, right? It's taking eight weeks to study it, 
will help you with whatever theme is your theme. You know, maybe you're really into the impersonal nature, the anatta, or you're really into the dukkha part of it, or you're really into, you know, seeing the defilements as just natural processes, conditioned processes in the mind that come and go. So whatever way in to your own experience that really works for you, learning about metta, loving kindness, or learning about impermanence, or learning about any of these things we cover will help because it's, they're all different pictures or different windows into dhamma or dharma the way it is. Right? So we're studying nature, the nature of our own experience or the nature of our subjective experiencing. And I'm going to try to train myself not to use the word experience, but especially during this course to use the word experiencing, right? to kind of point, always keep pointing to what this is right now for each of us, the subjective experiencing, right? it's emotion. It isn't a thing. It isn't a noun. My life, as if it's some sort of static edifice. My life is like this. And you know, when we use language and we say that, like, right now my life is like this, it has the appearance of being more set or fixed or permanent than our actual subjective experience is. It's so interesting, even through the course of a 30-minute sit like we had tonight, you know, maybe you got a little bit of a sense of these, it's like a moment of reality, oh, it's like this, but immediately in the next moment, it's not like that, it's a little bit different. It may be quite related to the previous moment, but it's very clearly not that previous moment. It's a different moment. And of course, we may not have enough clarity, enough sensitivity or stability of awareness to really see how that previous moment just like slipped off the map. It's just not there. Or how that this moment just sort of burst through something and showed up. We may not actually see that in a very clear way. But we can definitely, even with sort of our ordinary level of sensitivity and stability of awareness, we can really start collecting, having this experience, like collecting some data that this moment is not this moment, nor is it this moment. And whether you use sort of some image of like staccato where, okay, I got ground, but now I got ground. Or if it's just sort of a, a flow, those are just both stories, right? Because we're not trying to nail it down. This is the underlying metaphysical truth. And anybody who has a different idea is just stupid. You just haven't paid enough attention. So we're not trying to like, get the right answer. We're trying to uproot something. So it's a, we're using the teaching these eight weeks and then forever on impermanence the unreliable and uh, insubstantial, not constant. We're using that teaching, that training to see, experience this moment, every moment in that way on purpose to uproot an erroneous habit, right? This habit of the mind because of language, because of the meaning that we construct with language, because language is an abstract, or the meaning we construct with language, that's an abstraction. So I can construct meaning of permanence. And if my mind, if awareness is orienting toward the conceptual meaning that words, language is constructing, then I start believing in that. So we want to loosen those screws, that habit of falling for the projection that our thinking constructs, right? of a solid or permanent whatever, me, this. And then whatever, when that falls apart, we call that dharma, 
the way it is. And you can say, you know, oh, it's changing, or you can say it's impersonal, it's just nature. But those words aren't it, right? But to really open to Dhamma, or the way it is, we have to uh, strategically undermine the habits of having a fixed view. And one of the expressions of the fixedness is this projection or imagining of permanence. It happens so regularly, so constantly, that it's sort of status quo. So it doesn't seem um, wrong or inappropriate that we're living almost always with some fixed, some sense of things being fixed or static or permanent, including me. No, I know I'm not like I was when I was a teenager, but that was me and this is me. So the idea of me is what's fixed. But if you know, if you ask me to break that down, you know, I wouldn't be able to find what it is that's fixed except the idea that that is me. That's the thing that's fixed, right? That it's fixed or permanent is the permanent part of it. Does that make sense? So it's really slippery because you might rationally know that, oh, no, I know things have changed. My body's changed. My personality's changed. My point of view has changed. But all of that change has happened to me, and that didn't change. Right? And there's, that's just one example of how we live with an unseen, unacknowledged fixedness. But there's a remedy to that, which is just becoming gradually more and more interested and intimate with the way things are, whatever that is. Because when we have this using awareness, not a thought about the way things are, but just a direct, a more direct, relaxed, simple experiencing of the way things are, that, it, that way of being, that way of relating, will eventually uproot any wrong idea that there's something fixed. And it has a purpose. Right? We're not just doing it so we can be good. Like We're bad if our ideas aren't in alignment with reality. No, we suffer if our ideas, our views aren't in alignment with reality. So we're specifically taking this pointing out instruction to train the heart to be sensitive to the changing nature, the inconstant and unreliable nature of any experience. Whatever experience is happening in the moment, that will do perfectly well. We, don't, we never need a different moment to contemplate impermanence. So even now as you're listening, right, you can notice that whatever's happening for any of us right now, it's quite alive with change. And then part of what we're trying to do during these eight weeks is keep that theme in mind, even as we continue to function as an ordinary human being. We don't have to somehow take a break from our responsibilities of raising kids or going to work or putting our clothes on or you know, doing the things that we do as a human being to be interested in the changing nature, the flow, uncertain, inconstant nature of experience. That we're just grounding in that flow, right? I mean, just the simple flow of the my words. It's like he's not stopping. He just keeps talking. <laughs> you know, and then our reaction to the words that just keeps happening too, whether we like it or don't like it or bored, excited, whatever. But we can notice that that's a changing process too. And the visual field is changing. right? And the body's changing. And all of it is uncertain. We're not in control. It's uncertain. It's unreliable. And when that starts to freak us out, we construct an idea. Well, I have my bed at home. And, some, and then that idea of me eventually being able to go home, that seems fixed. The idea of a me who has a home and a bed 
And so this is a, the basic movement in our hearts is the reason that we human beings are anxious and uneasy is because we've gotten ourselves in this predicament where we have to constantly construct meaning that has a fixedness as a defense, get this, a defense against the way it actually is. See, it's a losing battle. <coughs> We're up against the way it is all life long. Right? This is what it means to be deluded or ignorant or an ordinary human being, all of us, not fully awake. I don't know anybody fully awake, right? But I know people that appreciate the ignorance that is conditioned into the mind, their mind, my mind, right? That it becomes more and more familiar all the ways the mind has gotten conditioned, dependent on its ideas of fixedness, permanence. Because we're in this weird or ironic or tragic position of being afraid of change or afraid of the way it is. And I try to suggest this in the guided sit because, of course, we're not making things different by doing our practice. It's like, it's not that things are permanent, but when we wake up, they become impermanent, inconstant, unreliable, and then we think, oh, I think I'll go back. No, we're really just wanting to be more intimate with the way it actually is, coming into alignment with nature so that everything, body, mind, heart, every, external, internal, everything is in alignment with everything. That balance or that harmony or that integration is spiritual healing, coming into alignment with the way things are. And we get that sense we have actually, you know, especially the more we do this and the more we trust the practice, we have little moments. And this is, can be related to having a good sit in the sense of samadhi or quietness, calmness. But it's not exactly the same as having a good sit in that sense. When we have these little moments of, of beautiful integration where for a moment or maybe a couple moments, there's no activity in the mind and body that is opposing nature. There's no part of this thing we call me that feels threatened by what this is. I'm going to, I forget if I put it in the link, but I'm going to read before we end this, one of my favorite articles about impermanence, this woman um, with terminal breast cancer, Eva Salitis. I'm not exactly sure how she pronounces her last name. But what I like about this article is just how, uh, you know, how we can reframe and uh, sort of recreate, start over how we relate to change and birth and death and all of its ordinariness. You know, the birth and death of this body, but each moment, birth and death, this sort of uh, standing joke in Dharma circles that if somebody asks, you, a teacher, about like what happens at the time of death, the sort of Buddhist answer is, well, notice what's happening right now because that's what happens at the time of death. I mean, it seems a little like, well, that's a stupid answer, but there's something uh, ordinary about birth and death. It's like it's not just that moment when a child is born or that moment when a person dies and the mind is somehow, we see the body, like from our perspective, looking at somebody who's died, 
we see the body that's not animated by a mind anymore. I mean, that's really what we can say about it. And then the other consequence is that the body, you know, falls apart, starts to de decay. And we don't really know much more. But one of the things that we can do these eight weeks is really develop radar for birth and death. You know, how Monday was born, and now we're in the twilight hours of Monday, right? Or lunch arose, and then it ceased. Or this conversation came, and now it's gone. Or this breath came in, this breath went out. And again, it's just, this, just another version of learning to live we take this skillful pointing out instruction from our teachers, and then we live with it. We reflect on impermanence. We use it as a frame to live our life through. So all day long for these eight weeks, every hour, every minute, as many minutes as we can remember, just to be framing, seeing, experiencing in terms of birth and death. This is arising. This is ceasing. I remember I just noticed I blinked. And I remember when I was in Burma practicing for five months a long time ago, the instructor, that monk, said, yeah, I'd, I'd like you to notice each blink. <laughs> and it's interesting because it's like, uh, I mean, I kind of wrote it off like, you know, that's, that's, that's too much. Yeah. <laughs> But, but you can't help yourself, you know, then you start, they drop it in, you know, they drop the instructor and then you just start noticing a blank. I mean, I'm not saying I noticed every blank, but you just start to notice those things. Now, a lot of you are going to start noticing each time you blank. <laughs> Did you notice that, Chelsea? <laughs> and then the mind starts doing funny things, like, then it like, <laughs> it kind of becomes a thing, a little neurotic. <laughs> And then we laugh, right? And we notice that. But, but just with these frames, right, we, we, we start to see things that we didn't otherwise see. The kind of birth and death that there's a moment and it really goes away. And when the mind's more sensitive, you, you actually start to feel it, like we're feeling the reality of impermanence. That might be a more useful, like what is the what is the feeling of the groundlessness of things coming and going? What is what does that feel like? Because it it can have the sense, as I mentioned a, a bit ago, of almost like there's a a moment of reality. It's real, but then it, there's another moment of reality like a parallel universe that looks a lot like the previous moment of reality, but it, it has a very distinct, it's actually not that moment. That's all the heart or the wisdom knows, that it's not the same moment. But clearly it's related, it's conditioned by. And you want to let that, you want to notice that. Like those of you who live with people, even a dog or cat, other beings, because the conditioned mind, the habit-based mind, is going to want to say, oh, that's that person. That's that person. That's that person. Because right? a lot of us know each other. But that's like what we're connecting to is the staticness of our idea of that person. But when you're more truthful, more in your practice, you'll realize you've never met that cat before or that partner, that person you refer to as your partner before. You've met something before that is related to what you're meeting right now, but it's not the same. You've never met this person. And even a moment later, it's a different person. And the same thing with your own life, your own heart, the nature of your own mind. It's always fresh. That's why there's so much energy arises in practice when we in moments where we have some momentum, some deeper trust, and 
continuity, it feels that this is the other side. I mean, there's two sides of impermanence. We tend to think of impermanence in terms of cessation, things going away, things ending. But there's no endings without beginnings. So if things are always ceasing, ending, falling away, that means things are always showing up, bursting forth. Whoa, where did this come from? How did this come to be? So the Buddha says, when a practitioner abides much with their mind fortified by the perception of impermanence, one, one's mind retreats, retracts, and recoils from gain, honor, and renown, and does not reach out to it, just as a rooster's feather or strip of sinew thrown on a fire retreats. Now, we probably don't have personal experience, but maybe you, know, you notice when you put fat or some kind of meat into a really hot pan, it sort of shrivels up or a feather kind of shrivels up. So there's the sense that the things that normally captivate the mind, gain and loss, praise and blame, right? But when we're noticing, when we're living in the reality of impermanence, really connected, really intimate, aligning, right? The mind isn't interested in those things that we're usually interested in. So we often wonder, because we have enough sense, enough spiritual sense to know that attachment hurts, right? At least in moments when we're really clinging, really attached, really struggling with the conditions of the moment. We know how much that hurts, and we can really, really, really want to let go. That really, really, really wanting to let go is not the cause for letting go. The cause for letting go, dropping attachment, is seeing the underlying nature. And that's why the Buddha uses this image. I mean, it may not be sort of poetic, or you may not, but those people back then mostly lived around a campfire, right? Usually it was in their homes, probably, or in their huts, but they had a little fire, and they were always throwing meat, or there's a chicken feather that would get in the fire, and they'd see how it immediately recoil or shrivel. And how it's like our attraction to gain and loss, praise and blame, the sort of worldly things, we recoil from that when we understand the underlying nature. Now, it's okay right now if this, like, it, like, it's really okay to be skeptical about this. Because until we know the experience, it should, it's hypothetical. Like, is that, is that really true? I mean, there are some things, like, I don't know about others who are my age, but, you know, certain things, certain pursuits seem to make less sense as you get older. And I, I try to stay kind of really interested in, in being in good shape. But I have to say, it's just like less interesting as I've gotten older to be really fit. And I'm not that old. <laughs> but it just, you know, or other sort of achievement things. You know, making peace with a lot of those worldly things that at other times in my life seemed really important. And so this, there's, this is just a little bit of that realizing that I'm not going to invest in that. That's not worthy of my psychic investment because I have some deeper sense that I can't really own it, have it in any sort of lasting, permanent way. So why would I bother being attached to this or that if I can't hold on to it anyway, if I can't own it in a lasting way. So the Buddha diagnosed our problem as living beings, sensitive beings, who are transfixed, attached to ideas of permanence. You know, having a nice place, 
And I'm not saying we should give up our nice places or our nice friends or our nice health or any of the things that we're finding supportive in our lives. But if we notice that everything comes and goes, absolutely everything in this conditioned world comes and goes, then we won't suffer so much when things come and go. Because we won't be surprised. And all the while, knowing that, we'll look for some other refuge than having a nice home or a healthy body or good friends. doesn't mean we're going to give up on our projects of having good friends or a nice place to live or good food or good health. It just means that we know it's only a temporary support for my life. Still something, health is not nothing, clearly. Having a safe place to live is not nothing. But we all know stories. We see it. We see what's kind of in the works for all of us. We can't hold on to any of that. And another little teaching from the Buddha, when a practitioner sees six rewards... It should be enough for them to establish unlimitedly the perception of impermanence in all formations. What six? All formations will seem to me insubstantial. That's number one. All formations, all constructions, all perceptions, right, will seem to me insubstantial. Second, and my mind will find no relish in all of the world. It's two. So no, like, not confused by the beauty and goodness. Oh, yeah, let's take that trip together. But the heart knows, the, the wisdom in the heart knows, yeah, it's just going to be that trip, might be really fun, and then it will end. Or, oh, yeah, let's go out, let's go to this place. I really like the food there. But there's no relish because the mind knows, yeah, it will be really nice for a while and then it will be over. So we take the whole package. Some of you know the relatively famous story of Ajahn Chah talking about his nice teacup. Someone, he was a Buddhist monk in Thailand, really influential teacher for the early Buddhist circles here in the West. And uh, he liked to talk about this nice teacup that one of his lay followers gave him. So he had a nice teacup. Monks don't have too many nice things. And sometimes people would sort of, like, what is that monk doing with a nice teacup? And he would always talk about, well, I practice seeing it as if it's already broken. right? So that as a counterweight to the attachment. right? So imagine going home. I'm not sure you should say this to your partners, but see them as a skeleton. See them as already dead. Like, see that part of it. Yeah, you remember them when they were 20, and you imagine them no longer being here as a living being. Right? Or I was noticing today as I was working, preparing for the tonight, I thought, oh, I'll go to the Birchwood. It's time, the early morning. Um, breakfast baked goods are now half price. So I got myself a little muffin, blueberry muffin, half price. And I was just noticing how, how nice it was. It was so nice. It had been raining. It just, it's just a block away, just enough of a walk, but nothing too taxing, you know. <laughs> I just like, there's, our street is really getting a canopy of leaves, and it's a pretty or, orderly block, you know. Not a lot of obvious distress in my neighbors' lives that you can notice from the outside, you know, walking down the street and just appreciating the orderliness. Now, if I had been a little wiser, it's nice, it's helpful to notice what's beautiful, to notice what's good. That It was having a positive effect in my mind. But I could have even taken it a natural step further and realized, and it won't always be this way, Right? Because what place 
has been orderly for any real length of time. I mean, especially when we think about geologic time. But even in terms of human history, which is a relatively tiny little sliver of what's been going on in this planet, you know, it comes and goes. It won't always be so. And then one last little teaching here just about the importance of this teaching on impermanence. I'll find a more in-depth sutta here. So uh, the Buddha was talking with Anattapindaka, a famous character, layperson, very generous person, supported the monks and nuns quite a bit. And they were talking about the value of gifts. Like, and so they, there's the, the Buddha recalls this extreme time when somebody gave this amazing gift. And it was just like goes on in all the details, all the cloth, all the gold, all the food, and just this sort of over-the-top example of somebody giving a great gift. And he says, I mean, it's just like somebody, like a billionaire giving everything away. You can imagine that. Like, that's a good thing, he was saying to Anathapindaka. That's a good thing. But to give one meal to somebody with real insight is hundreds of times better than some billionaire just giving all their money away, right? Because the gift, what makes a gift impactful is both the motivation and the impact of the gift. So feeding somebody with real wisdom so they can live their life and share what they have to share, that's impactful. And then he goes on like the different gradations of wise people, like to feed a Buddha, like somebody who's not only awake, but is able to articulate their wake their sort of awakened status in a way that helps other people wake up. And then if you feed the Buddha and all the Buddha's monks and nuns, and then there's something even more valuable than that. And like there's a lot of good karma, you know, we sometimes say in a superficial way in doing that. Like if we could feed a, um, uh, an awakened person. I was practicing in Thailand at Ajahn Mahabua's monastery, he was one of the more famous uh, Thai masters of this last century. Died maybe five years ago or so, maybe a little bit more now. But and uh, I was just doing my practice. But I checked in with the English-speaking monk about you know just I just kind of casually asked if if I could somehow connect with Ajahn Mahabua. So he's like really famous there. And the royal family has their own little kuti at his monasteries. It's kind of a big deal. But so somehow, because of the influence of this uh, American monk, I was able to offer Ajahn Mahabua some ice cream. Right? And, you know, it's, I'm not sort of making it more than what it is, but it, it sort of stands out in my mind like, oh, that was sort of nice. I mean, I didn't even go out and get the ice cream. Some Thai layperson gave me the ice cream to give to him, right? And... Uh, But just that sense of being close, having a connection, a moment of generosity to somebody who's had a lot of impact. And the reverberations are sort of, in a sense, unimaginable. You know, the benefits and people leading better lives and then affecting other people who lead better lives and on and on like that. And then the Buddha says, but more than that would be taking up the practice. Hundreds of times better than feeding a Buddha and all the monks and nuns would be taking refuge in being awake, Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, right? Waking up to the way it is and expressing your life as somebody who's being awake in a moment, being mindful in a moment. Just being a practitioner, so much more powerful. And then more powerful than that is taking your mindfulness practice into the precepts into this deep, resonant commitment not to cause harm, right? So that's like 100 times more than just having to practice, is connecting your practice with the intention not to harm yourself or others. And more powerful than that is to cultivate a powerful love
for as long as it takes to milk a cow. So like really being in that state of unconditional love for, so Doug, how long does it take to milk a cow? Yeah, okay. So if you can sustain, Doug grew up in a dairy farm south of here. Yeah, so if you can sustain an untainted love for four or five minutes, so much more powerful than all those other things. And then the last thing is to have the perception of the impermanent, insubstantial, unreliable, inconstant nature of experience for the length of time it takes to snap a finger, hundreds of times more valuable, more impactful for you and for everybody else than that five minutes of loving kindness or that deep commitment. And of course, they build on each other, right? Being generous makes it easier to, you know, to be sensitive to these other things, lead the heart into these other practices. But the point is, um, is to inspire us. Like in the Buddhist teachings, we're waking up to Dhamma. And one of the most subtle and transforming aspects of ordinary experience is that it undermines the sense of ground or fixedness or permanence. Just being interested in the way it is will uproot or undermine the deep unseen habit to be imagining permanence or fixedness, nouns, solidity. See, we, it goes on question. No, no, no. Life, this, common ground, you know, what's good, what's bad. Sort of, it just feels so solid and real. And, and these insights can be very disorienting for a while because it's just so out of the box. When we start getting little glimpses, like the rug's been pulled out. That's why a lot of Dharma people like that scene and some of you, it's funny how the, the matrix now is, like there are probably people who are young who haven't even seen that movie. <laughs> I don't know how long ago, but it's got to be at least 20 years ago the first one came out, right? Was it? 90s. Early 90s? Oh, mid-90s. Mid-90s. <laughs> so what would that be? Yeah, almost early, tw- more than 20 years, yeah. Okay, so 20 years. But anyway, there's a scene in that movie. Sorry, a little bit of a, whatever you call it when you give it away. But, you know, where... He's been warned, you know, you sure you want to you sure you want to see the way it is? And he does. <clears throat> and he realizes that he's been living a lie, basically. <clears throat> the matrix, right? The sort of common story. And he wakes up to the way it is. Now I'm not saying we're gonna wake up like he did. <laughs> but in a way, we it's a it's a real surprise to see the underlying nature. And it it can have all kinds of, you know, the initial taste or glimpse, you know, there can be some pushback. Like, because we don't, the mind, the heart doesn't know what to do with it. That's why it's so nice that the teachings are embedded um, in so many stories and so many metaphors, because it really normalizes. This is just, we're just getting comfortable in our bed. Impermanence is our bed. This is our bed. We've been in this bed for a long time. It's nothing new. I try to suggest that in the guided meditation. And that's why I wanted to end this first evening with this uh, article. And if I didn't send it out in the uh, email this uh, afternoon, I'll send it out tomorrow so everyone gets it. It was written not that long ago, 2014. And this woman then did die. And it's called Wild Darkness. It was published in Orion Magazine. And I'll just read a few paragraphs from this and then save a few minutes maybe for a few comments. She begins the article this way. For 26 Septembers, I've hiked up streams littered with corpses of dying humpback salmon. It's nothing new, nothing surprising, not the stench, not the gore, not the thrashing of black humpies plowing past their dead brethren, to spawn and die. It is familiar. Still, it is terrible and wild. Winged and furred 
predators gather at the mouths of streams to pounce, pluck, tear, rip, and plunder the living, dying hordes. This, is, this September, it is just as terrible and wild as ever. But I gather in the scene with different eyes, the eyes of someone whose own demise is no longer an abstraction, the eyes of someone who has experienced the tears, rips, and plunder of can- cancer treatment, In spring, I learned my breast cancer had come back, had metastasized to the pleura of my right lung. Metastatic breast cancer is incurable. Through its prism, I now see this world. And I'm skipping now a couple paragraphs. A summer of tests and procedures and doctor appointments kept me off the boat until now. Her job is to um, watch whales. So this hiking the streams and watching the salmon at the end of their life cycle is just something she and her husband do to get off the boat. So a summer of tests and procedures and doctor appointments kept me off the boat until now. A surgery, six-day hospitalization in early August to prevent fluid from building up taught me that certain experiences cut us off entirely from nature or seemed to. I know that as long as we inhabit bodies of flesh, blood, and bone, we are wholly inside nature. But under medical duress, we forget this, flesh, blood, and bone notwithstanding, a body hooked up by way of tubes and suction devices, by way of IV to synthetic morphine pump, forgets its organic animal self. In the hospital, I learned to fear something more than death, Existence dependent on technology, machines, sterile procedures, hoses, pumps, chemical, chemicals easing one kind of pain only to feed a psychic other. Existence apart from dirt, dirt, mud, muck, wind, wind gust, crow, claw, fishy, orcra, breath, bog, musk, deer track, rain, squall, bear scat. The whole ordeal was a necessary palliation, a stint of suffering to grant me long-term physical freedom. And yet it smacked of the way people too often spend last days alive, and it really scared me. Ultimately, what I faced in those hospital nights, what I face every day, is death impending. The other side the passing over into the big unknown. What a writer called his wild darkness. What a poet called his brilliant abyss. Death may be the wildest thing of all. The least tamed or known phenomena our consciousness has had to reckon with. I don't understand how to meet it, not yet, maybe never. Perhaps, I tell myself, Though we deny and abhor the battle death the, and battle death in our society, though we hide it away, it is something so natural, so innate, that when the time comes, our bodies, our whole selves, know exactly how it's done. All I know right now is that something has stepped toward me, something invisible, pres- some invisible presence in the woods one I've always sensed and feared and backed away from, called out out to in a tentative voice, hello? Trying to scare it off, but which I now must approach. I stumble toward it in a dusky conifer light, my own predatory furred toothed clawed angel. And she goes on and on. It's, I find, very beautiful. And I really, uh, what I appreciate so much as she's just finding her own way to make sense of something our conceptualizing mind can't make sense of, right? I mean, we can tell stories, and some stories are going to be better than other stories, you know, about death or own death. But it's never going to be the thing itself, birth and death. But we don't have to wait to birth and death. This is the great thing. And you see it indirectly in how she's talking. You know, she's really 
as she talks about the natural world. She's really connecting with her lived experience. She's really lining up her lived experience with her predicament, the story that she has cancer. Things are starting to line up. And more and more you sense, as she's you know, writing this article, that she's finding some space, some peace, right there in the wildness of not knowing what death is. And it's okay. You know, we don't really know what life is either. We just think we do. And this is what, you know, this is the deal, you know, for those of us who are really interested in freedom, like putting the load down, not being an anxious, tight, reactive, fearful human being. We have we have to let go of the known. That's really the price we pay. And that's really what the contemplation of impermanence is all about. It strips away the known. Because all the known, it really is built on imagining that our imaginings are more than what they are. So all our constructions through with emotion and thought, all the meaning we construct is just a picture. It's just an abstraction. It's never the thing itself, life itself. And that's, you know, it can be a bit of a rude awakening, but it's, it feels so right. And that's the awakening process. It feels so right. We, you know, to the degree we're sensing the path, nobody ever says no. We sometimes, you know, at least in my experience, being somewhere in the middle of the path, you know, we doubt that we can do it. That happens, you know. But once we have a sense of the path, it always feels like the right thing to, to keep doing. We just might want to rest or screw around for a while <laughs> and then get back to it, you know. I was thinking, God, it'd be so nice to have ice cream tonight. <laughs> I met, I, when I was peeing right before, practice, uh, before the group began, I, I was thinking about ice cream. And, uh, and, then it, you know, and then it's sort of like that, that sort of question like, oh, yeah, I'd have ice cream. It would be, it would be really nice, and it might be really nice. Um, but then it would be like, then it would be over, and then I'd have to go to bed. And there would be this sort of experience of having had ice cream. It's like this. You know, and it's like really, and it really is such an affront to realize that those things we dangle in front of us, whatever it might be, you know, really getting my act together in some way. But that it's never going to be enough. But it's so nice not to need it then. Right? That's part of the freedom that understanding, relating, connecting, integrating impermanence is that we're not tied to anything. Whether we could get it or not, we don't, we're, we're not dependent on it. And that freedom is really, um, yeah, it's just something we want a lot of humility about how transforming it is or how impactful it could be. So I'll just save time. Maybe one or two people could share any thoughts that you have about what I've said tonight. Anything come to mind from this beginning? Oh, yeah, and let's end with the chant. So there's time for one person to share. Anybody wants to share? Any reflections from your own life that seem useful for the group? Yeah, Charlie. This is just a little thing. Uh, my partner doesn't practice, um, and so... Uh, and the path has moved me so much, but there's this thing that we've been able to share that's been helpful. We talk about the bubble and how we really like the bubble, but we know that the bubble's 
really not going to stay there. It's always changing. The bubble's changing. And it's remarkable how much tension it's taken out um, of the things that we strive for, like, um, you know, wanting to have the, you know, our home stay the way that it is and our health and stuff. We just talk about the bubble, you know. So it's, uh, it's just been really helpful. Just made everything, it just a, it takes out a tension that's back there, like a striving tension that is not conscious. Yeah, thank you, Charlie. Let's just end our time together doing this chant. So this is a traditional reflection on impermanence. And usually what we do is the Pali three times. And don't worry if you don't know it. You'll pick it up. And uh, then we'll do the English once. Anicca vata sankara Upadava yadamino Upajitua niruchanti Te sang upasamo suko Anicca vata sankara Upadava yadamino Upajitua nuruchanti te sang upasamo suko anicca vata sankara upadawa yadamino upajitua nuruchanti Te sang upasamo suko. All conditioned things arise and pass away. Understanding this deeply leads to the greatest happiness, which is peace. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.